Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. Oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I'm your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and once again, thank you for joining us on what is going to be a great podcast, I guarantee it. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters, volumes one through eight, all available at Amazon in ebook and paperback format, and also at Audible, volumes one through six as well as one of my new exorcist books named Diabolica. But the other exorcist books, Full Moon and Truth and Lies, are available at Amazon in paperback and ebook as well. So do help us out. Go out and buy a book. And now, without any further ado, let me introduce my brother and co-host, K.J. Sheehan. Kev, how are you? I'm good. How about you, Bill? Well, I'm rocking and rolling over here, man. The heat is on and it's staying on. Yeah, well, it's the dog days of summer. Yeah, problem is I'm not a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Almost August. Almost (laughs) August. Yeah, it's been brutal, man. I mean, I don't even want to go out and mow the lawn, but, you know, you got to do stuff. Yeah. So uh, here we are. And, uh, you know, by the time this podcast airs, this uh, hurricane or tropical storm, Isaias, is hitting uh, Puerto Rico and uh, heading towards the Dominican and or Florida, probably be sliding up the coast into your neighborhood. Yeah, we're uh, just looking at that and getting ready to batten down the hatches. <laughs> Quite <laughs> literally. Yeah, it's <laughs> unbelievable, man. By the way, so this is a guaranteed podcast tonight? I guarantee. <laughs> All right. That's right. If you That's don't like cool. it, if you don't like it after you listen to it, you can turn it off. <laughs> That's, That's my quite the quite the guarantee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like if you buy a used car from me and the motor blows, you're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> so my Very brother. Good. I'm sure you've got something uh, geared up for our cryptids in the news and other oddities segment. I do. I do, Bill. Today, uh, we're going to talk about the Minerva monster. Uh, Are you familiar with this creature? uh, I have to say, I I have to hear a little bit about it before I say I'm aware or not. All right. That's fair enough. So Minerva isn't the name of the monster, like my monster, Minerva, but it's a city, a small city in northeastern Ohio, and it's about halfway between Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, western Pennsylvania, 
and Cleveland in northern Ohio. Okay. And it looks like a cool little town. And, uh, you know, the, the, all the action in, with the Minerva Monster, the, the initial documentation of the action, occurred in August of 1978. Okay, but not- going back a few years, but about this time of the year, nice hot day, hot night. Yeah, got the Minerva Monster rustled up in the heat. Exactly, exactly. Everybody gets a little edgy <laughs> when it's hot. It's time to go hunting for some humans. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, the, you know, basically there's that, well, not basically, there is a, um, a documentary about this, a well-made documentary, I must say, uh, which you may have seen, Bill. Uh, I didn't see it until I started to research this. And that documentary came out in 2015. And these days you can view the documentary on YouTube. So uh, I happen to watch it on YouTube. Pretty, pretty good. About yeah, an and, hour long. And that's the Minerva Monster on YouTube, like Keto's yeah, words yeah. in? Minerva Monster. You'll see it. Documentary. I think it originally came out on DVD and stuff like that, but that's what I mean. These days, you can see it right on uh, YouTube. Awesome. And it's a good documentary. Like, they interview the family members that lived at this house that saw it. They interviewed the sheriff, the sheriff deputy, and uh, a newspaper reporter extensively that wrote many accounts about this sighting and follow-up sightings. Yeah, and see, you know, all of this just, you know, I I hate to knock the individual that comes forward. I I love these people. But, you know, here here you have uh, a little documentary put forth, a few you would consider credible witnesses. And, uh, you know, it just doesn't get any airtime. You know what I mean? But yet these people are trying to put out there, and some investigators doing his due diligence to bring the story forth. And here we are talking about it uh, today. Yeah, and, you know, like I often say, this sighting back in 1978, so there was no such thing as YouTube and stuff like that, where somebody would come up with this story to try and get a bunch of hits on their YouTube channel in order to sell more advertising or something like that. I mean, this is a family uh, living in this house, you know, in northeastern Ohio, little town, and you'll hear here hear that this creature starts messing with them over time. Yeah, and in '78, Kev, right? How would you get this out there to the public? No, just a local newspaper. And yeah, that's, just that's this reporter that's actually in the documentary. Yeah, that's it. It would be impossible to really you you couldn't go to a local news network in '78 and get any airtime. No. And by the way, when these folks came forward with the story and got got it in the newspaper and stuff like that, then other people came forward. And it's like, you know, people have been seeing this thing around this area for a number of years. Yeah, Interesting how one, all it takes is one with a little guts. And then, you know, some people will pile in behind them and say, you know, I was a witness too, you know. And what's really interesting, Bill, is they interviewed a lot of different people that have seen this so-called Minerva monster, and they would describe it in a very similar way. And the description's a little bit different here. So before I talk about the account, let me tell you what the, what the sheriff said the people described that they saw. All right. All right. So six to seven foot hairy man. So completely covered in hair. Okay. 
and five to 600 pounds, many different witnesses. Now, I got good news for you, Bill. No red eyes. Ah, no red eyes. What color were they? Blue? <laughs> so get this. So it had, in all the descriptions, it had, <clears throat> excuse me, a much hairier face than we normally hear about. So kind of, they said they could see the nose, but couldn't really see the mouth, even in the daytime. You know, just like a lot of hair on its face. Okay. Yeah, well, Which I is mean, interesting. I, it, it can go either way. You know, people describe hair coming in from the side, almost like uh, in a mustache, and then down around the jawline forming a beard. Some people say uh, they've seen them with fur encroaching, like, to the eyebrows. Right. You know, this is, you know, I, I guess I don't want to say like a human because humans don't. Well, look, we grow beards, right? We could grow a beard. If we didn't have razors, we'd have hairy faces. Yep. Yep. Uh, so, you but know, usually you have that like uh, patch, you know, almost like a triangle from the bridge of the nose and the eyes down to the mouth where like people talk about dark, leathery skin and stuff like that. Yeah. And in all these descriptions, they don't talk about that. Right. And in some of the sketches, which I'll put up on uh, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods.com, you'll see it looks a little bit more like Cousin It, if you remember Cousin It. Yeah, yeah, okay. In the Adams family. Can you give and me I, an can you no, give me ahead. an imitation of Cousin It? <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about that. He used to just do that gibberish, and he'd flip his head around. He used to wear a little derby. <laughs> My voice wasn't quite high enough, though, right? <laughs> oh, man. Well, you did a good job. Maybe I'll put a picture of Cousin Ed up on the website, too. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but uh, the other interesting thing, again, multiple witnesses say that when they see this creature, get this, it's sta- when it's standing looking at them, it has its hands down by its waist with its thumbs facing outward and its palms facing upward. Wow, that's weird. So, you know, if you do that with your hands, it's kind of like, hey, what do you want? You know. Yeah, it's like, what's up? Yeah, it's definitely some kind of expression, which, again, multiple witnesses say when they see it, it looks this way. Wow, that's interesting. Very strange, right? Yeah, I mean... You know, and if a bunch of different people cite the same thing during their interview, that's kind of unusual, you know? Yep. So this house, so let's go back to the setting. This house is a single-family house with kind of a detached garage um, in uh, rural Ohio. It's on this road that's an interstate, Interstate 30, but, you know, if you've traveled the country multiple times, across the country multiple times like me in a vehicle— You'll be like, Interstate 30? What the heck is that? You know, it's not really an interstate. It's one of the original interstates, but it's more like a Route 66. You know? Like it's been dissected or bisected. It's a two-lane road, you know, running through the countryside. Right, right. So, so not really an interstate. But then, interestingly, behind this house is woods. Like, you go up a ridge into the woods right behind the house. Like the woods comes right down, the ridge comes right down to the back. And then beyond the first part of the woods is an abandoned strip mine. Hmm. It, yeah, pretty strange, right? Yeah, and also it brings me back to the uh, the Mothman. Yes. You know, they had that, uh, wasn't it a mine of some sort some up in the woods where the couple saw them? Yeah. Something going on with the mine, you know? Yeah. 
unlike Mothman, no, this it wasn't a full moon, and they weren't they weren't digging a grave when they saw him. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. And this story's kind of boring now that you mention it. <laughs> <laughs> but so apparently this family, this particular night in August, they called the sheriff. They never called the sheriff before. And they called because something was continuously throwing rocks at the back of the house from up on the ridge. And it turns out they had had this happen before. And they've gone out and they've seen somebody. They thought it was like some crazy old man walking around up on the ridge in the woods behind their house. But for whatever reason, this time it was like, you know, a little more uh, vicious, the the attack with the rocks where they were starting to get worried. Uh, It was a little more violent, and uh, they ended up calling the sheriff. Did they say how long they had been living there? Uh, for years. Oh, okay. Years. So this was, it wasn't like they just moved in no, and six it wasn't months like later. the last two months. It sounds okay. like it went on for a long time. Okay. Yeah. And then one time they sight somebody on this ridge. Multiple times. Multiple times they have seen this thing. And then, you know, after this sighting, they actually saw like this large hairy creature where they got the description both at the house And then I'll tell you, remind me if I don't tell you, about them chasing it at one point in time. They chased it? Yes. Wow. And they caught it. So this is like some of the uh, kids there. It seems like a pretty large family of kids that grew up seeing, you know, they, they called it like the man who lived in the woods behind the garage. Like they never saw the man, but somebody was always throwing rocks and stuff. And they would throw the rocks back. So it was just kind of a weird setting, you know? Yeah. But what the heck? It's rural. You got this strip mine behind you. It could be, you know? I mean, you know, you're not thinking Bigfoot. You're thinking some crazy guy lives back there. Or maybe some kids are throwing rocks. Yeah, mischievous person or persons. Exactly, exactly. Um, So this all happens over time. They call the sheriff this particular night. The sheriff comes out. And they also discover that this guard dog, German Shepherd, that they have that's chained up outside has a broken neck. Oh, boy. Yeah. And he's usually on a collar and a leash and has like a little tunnel that he dug, the dog dug, to sleep in outside. Pretty mean guard dog that they got from a neighbor a couple of years ago. And um, the dog has, it's out of its collar And it has a broken neck. So they point that out because, you know, the family members said it's not like the dog broke its own neck, you know, which could happen. Not likely, but it could happen. Now, this was part of the testimony from the sheriff? Yes. Uh, Of uh, evidence that was uh, around the the house? The rocks, the the, uh, dog with the broken neck. Um, They had footprints out around the house that they'd seen multiple times, too. That were kind of, they talk about them as being deep in nature, like in the dirt, yeah. um, to, to you know, go correspond with something that weighed five or 600 pounds. Mm-hmm. They talk about the fact that there's clear toes, like human-like toes, and no claws. Yeah. So they're getting ready in case somebody says, oh, this was just a bear. Yeah. Like yeah. they always say. Well, you know, again, I get, I stand my ground that even people who want like uh, hunters per se, people who live in the woods, uh, especially for years, you get pretty familiar with what's around you and what things look like. Even if you're not trying to, 
You're, you're just powers of observation uh, are, are working. And you're like, wow, look at this track over here. What do you think that is? And maybe you learn that's a deer. And then, you know, somebody tells you, oh, this is uh, a raccoon. Yep. You know, no you just pick it. up on it, you know. It's interesting, too. A little bit like, remember when we did the Hopkinville Goblins a few weeks back? Yeah. Where they called, that was like aliens and UFOs. But when they called the police, if you remember, the sheriff came out and he said there was like no booze around and nobody was drinking or under the influence. This sheriff that responded to this call said the same thing in his report. Okay, so something they look for. Yeah, of course. You know, know, trying to. I don't think they're in particular trying to discredit you. They're just doing their due diligence on a call. Right. Making observations. That's it. What's going on? Mm hmm. so they went out and they searched the next day, and they found back in the woods behind the place a 12-foot round area that looked like a bedding area for the creature. Wow. This was behind the house or up behind on this the house, ridge? Up in the woods. Wow. Yeah. And a sheriff found some fur in the bedding area, and they sent it to Canton University, you know, the Football Hall of Fame there right. in Canton, Ohio, and uh, for identification, and he reported that they could not identify what the fur was. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Now, I doubt they did DNA analysis or anything like that, but still, it's interesting. Right. No, they didn't have it back then. Right. And really, exactly. you know, even if you do DNA today, you know, when it comes up unknown, People still don't buy into it that it's a Bigfoot. Right. You know, there's been people who've come up with uh, many samples to date now, and it comes up, you know, partial human, unknown, primate, you know, uh, odd little uh, labelings they give these things. Yeah. But nobody takes a, a step and says, wow, you know, maybe a Bigfoot, maybe a Sasquatch, you know. Agree, agree. Now, one of the other little facts that they talked about in this story is that they said whenever the creature was around, all the crickets, locusts, and frogs would stop chirping, Hmm. and there was no sound. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, where have we heard that before? Like a thousand times. (laughs) I was going to say a thousand times. Yeah, yeah. We thought the same thing. Um, And um, so, so... you know, pretty strange. A lot of different sightings, not by not just by this family, you know, which had a lot of different family members. They were all grown up at the time, too, in 1978. So apparently they, they grew up in this house with the parents. And then, you know, they got their jobs, uh, not necessarily in the same town, but, you know, maybe an hour away or something like that. So they would live out an hour away in different directions. But on weekends, pretty consistently, they would all come home and spend time with one another and the mom and dad at the family house where this would take place. Uh-huh. And uh, so, you know, they're reliable witnesses, and you'll see them in the documentary interviewing. I'll, I'll put that up on our website, too, the link to the documentary. And um, it's it's pretty darn interesting. So happened lots over time. And then when this story got published, like I mentioned earlier, other people around the Minerva area came forward and said, you know, I saw that like a year ago crossing the road. Wow. You know, and this and that. So good, uh, good, interesting stuff. And then when they wrote about it, like I'll put some of the articles 
uh, on the on the website from back in 1978. The stories, of course, were local stories to begin with, but then they got picked up even globally. Mm. And what happened in the town, it's interesting, is it ended up being a place where a lot of folks would come uh, to hunt Bigfoot, like in a, you know, in a uh, true hunting sense. Yeah, trying so, to kill one. To kill one. And they would show up apparently like on a Friday night uh, with a truck full of guys and guns. And then with like one of them was described as having a killer Doberman pincher with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just got really out of control. You know, the sheriff talks about it in the interview where one time he was out there on his patrol after this whole thing happened, after it was written about, and, like, the road was partially blocked off because there were so many, you know, what I would call, like, Bigfoot vigilantes out there uh, trying to kill a Bigfoot. So it's kind of disturbing a little bit. And then, of course, I say, of course, like, which is often the case with a lot of these sightings, the family ended up being heavily ridiculed for years afterwards. Like, oh, yeah, you're the one that had the monster throwing rocks at your house. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is why another reason why, like, we need one, that a lot of people don't come forward and give exactly. you exact areas. Because there's tons of people out there that would inundate properties, Yes. Uh, you know, or, or come and suck up every bed and breakfast in a town and start asking questions. You know, where can we go to see a Bigfoot around here? You know, well, in this particular they the, in this particular area, too, they talked about a lot of people showing up that were just completely drunk, you know, and just wanting to shoot the place up, which, you know, yeah. that's a big difference from, hey, I'd like to get a glimpse of this creature, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Again, it's a reason why some people will bow out and say, listen, man, don't say nothing. Before you know, we'll have a bunch of jerks piling into our backyard here and uh, we'll have a real problem, you know, and there's some truth to that. Yeah, so, you know, all in all, right in this period of time in the late 70s, there were about a dozen filed reports from seven different witnesses who said that they saw the creature you know, over this period of time. So a lot of, lot of different, lot of different sightings. One of the witnesses said that they drove a car when they saw it, like crossing the road, they drove a car with its headlights on closer to the creature to get a better view. And when the beast ran towards the car, so kind of charged them, the occupants uh, ran back into the house where, uh, where the creature was originally seen. And then the creature came up to the house and looked through the window at them in the house. The folks in the house took out a gun and pointed it at the creature, and it didn't flinch or even move. So that was, uh, you know, one of the one of the data points that they had where they said, I don't think this was like a person pretending to be it, because any person that was wearing some kind of suit when they looked in the window of the house and they saw you take a gun out and point it at it, you wouldn't just stand there. No, I wouldn't. I'd dive out of the way. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, and in those parts, man, you know, you don't just go running around chasing people around. Anybody could be armed. You know, just a charging a car. Yeah. You know, boy, oh boy. And first of all, we have descriptions here. Yeah. Uh, six to seven feet tall. 
five to six hundred pounds. That's a pretty healthy beast. It's a beast. It's wow. a big, big, strong beast. Wow. Um, I... And then, uh, the, you know, one of the last points uh, I'll make for you, Bill, and I'm interested if you've heard this before. I can't recall hearing this, but they said that the creature smelled like ammonia. Wow. Yeah. That uh, now ammonia is a powerful stench. Yeah, I mean that'll put you down. You can't stay on top of that. Right, you gotta... and it's not just like stink stench. It's specific. Yeah. So I mean, could ammonia be like uh, ridiculous urine stench? That's what I was thinking, but I don't know. It's yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, any way you slice it, so many encounters of Bigfoot involve a stink. Yeah. Uh, and even that one uh, hunter in uh, Hunting Bigfoot, uh, that show we were uh, talking about a while ago, yep. he was out in the woods that one night, and he said, "This is not uh, this is not a bear or an elk. I don't know what it is, right. you know." But his uh, sniffer was working overtime that night, and although he wasn't descriptive as to what he was smelling, he knew what he wasn't smelling. Right. And that's the important part to me uh, with a trained nose. You may not be able to label it, uh, but it strikes you as being out of the ordinary. Absolutely. Wow. Incredible. Cool. So that is the Minerva Monster. Excellent, man. Well, yeah, you know. Cool story. Cool story. And you really, you know, the, uh, again, I'll put all the links up on the website. It helps a lot to see the setting where it was seen and the house. You know, oftentimes we have to use our imagination, which is fun too. But in this case, when you look at it, you're like, oh, I get this, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. And was this house kind of rural? I mean, where they first saw it on this ridge and the rock throwing, were they kind of in the sticks? It's a rural-looking house, but it's like a grassy lawn, like it's probably on a couple of acres. Right. And it's mostly grass going down to this two-lane highway. Okay. In the front. So it's not like you go down a big, windy, wooded driveway to get there. You can see the road from the front porch of the house. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, we've had encounters uh, most recently, that one where the dog was taken off of his chain in New Jersey. Yeah, but the sheriff talks about the fact that along this I-30, when you're heading out to this area where Minerva is, it's called Paris Township, Uh, In this part of Ohio, he said there's a lot of woods on either side of the road in various spots. So, no doubt about it. I'd say, yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, there's got to be a connection to some forestation somewhere for big creatures to live. Oh yeah, but it's not to say there can't be a lot of houses around either. Yep. You know they don't know. What do they know if they're getting used to being around houses like uh, uh, bears going into dumpsters in national parks? They don't seem to care. They're just sniffing and looking around. Yep. And uh, who knows? Maybe this uh, this uh, Bigfoot got ticked off at these people. Maybe the children make a lot of noise. Uh, who knows why he started throwing rocks at them, you know? Yep. Well, this is uh, – I'm going to follow this. Uh, that was a great story, Kev, by the way. Uh, now, folks, I'm always bragging to my brother – on the excellence brought forth by our listeners. 
Uh, Kevin knows I spend a lot of time on the phone, and many of you all listeners, I've spoken to you for hour, two hours on the phone, hearing about your testimonials. And uh, we're always getting tips from people as well. So we encourage you, contact us at BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com. Go to our contact link. If you've seen something, say something. And uh, we appreciate all the back and forth, including the humorous pictures uh, (laughs) and different things. And Kevin posts a lot of what we get uh, on the web page. And in that light, a listener a week or two or three ago contacted me and said, Hey, Bill, I don't know if you've ever read this book. And the book is called The Long Walk, The True Story of a Trek to Freedom. And it was written by a man named Slavomir Rowitz. Slavomir Rowitz. And so I hadn't read it, but in the mail, he said to me, the guy saw a Bigfoot. Now, that gets my attention, right? So I went out and I bought a uh, used copy. And uh, I want to read something off the back cover of the book to you. I'll talk about it momentarily. And then I'm just going to dive right into where he writes about his sighting. Now listen to this. History is filled with people who have crossed immense distances and survived despite horrific odds. None of them, however, has achieved the extraordinary feat Rowitz has recorded. He and his companions crossed an entire continent the Siberian Arctic, the Gobi Desert, and then the Himalaya Mountains with nothing but an axe, a knife, and a week's worth of food. His account is so filled with despair and suffering, it is almost unreadable, but it must be read and reread. In 1941, the author and a small group of fellow prisoners escaped a Soviet labor camp. Their march out of Siberia through China, the Gobi Desert, Tibet, and over the Himalayas to British India is a remarkable statement about man's desire to be free. And so having read that little bit to you, friends, I could read a lot more. I'm going to open up the book to page 227 to where he begins to talk about what they saw. Now, by the way, eight men escaped from this prison camp, 303, I think it was. I haven't read the book. I was kind of speed reading through it. (coughs) Excuse me. I was speed reading through it, having missed the table of contents page. And I thought, well, that's odd. There's no table of contents. Well, it was there. It was the two pages were stuck together. And so I was kind of speed reading, looking for the part about these purported monsters the listener had told me about. And it's actually (laughs) when I got into the area, 
it's the second to the last chapter, and it's called Strange Creatures. So if the pages weren't stuck together, I would have been brought right to it. But here you go. Now, mind you, eight people escaped initially. And in the end, uh, when they finally made it through the Himalayas into uh, northern India, occupied by the British at the time, four of them were left. Uh, Four had expired. uh, And this is what happens. In all of our wanderings through the Himalayan region, we had encountered no other creatures than man, dogs, and sheep. It was with quickening interest, therefore, that in the early stages of our descent of this mountain, Kolomenos, our attention was drawn to two moving black specks against the snow about a quarter of a mile below us. We thought of animals and immediately of food, but as we set off down to investigate, we had no great hopes that they would await our arrival. The contours of the mountain temporarily hid them from view as we approached nearer, but when we halted on the edge of a bluff, we found they were still there, 12 feet or so below us, and at about a hundred yards away. Two points about them struck me immediately. They were enormous, and they walked on their hind legs. The picture is clear in my mind, fixed there indelibly by a solid two hours of observation. We just could not believe what we saw at first, so we stayed to watch. Somebody talked about dropping down to their level to get a close-up view. Zaro said, this was one of the men, they look strong enough to eat us. We stayed where we were. We weren't too sure of unknown creatures which refused to run away at the approach of men. I set myself to estimating their height on the basis of my military training for artillery observation. They could not have been much less than eight feet tall. One was a few inches taller than the other in the relation of the average man to the average woman. They were shuffling quietly round on a flattish shelf which formed part of the obvious route for us to continue our descent. We thought that if we waited long enough, they would go away and leave the way clear for us. It was obvious that they had seen us, and it was equally apparent they had no fear of us. The American said that eventually he was sure We should see them drop on all fours like bears, but they never did. Their faces I could not see in detail, but the heads were squarish and the ears must lie close to the skull because there was no projection from the silhouette against the snow. The shoulders 
sloped sharply down to a powerful chest. The arms were long and the wrists reached the level of the knees. Seen in profile, the back of the head was a straight line from the crown into the shoulders. And then he quotes, like a damn Prussian, as Palowitz put it. We decided unanimously that we were examining a type of creature of which we had no previous experience in the wild, in zoos or in literature. It would have been easy to have seen them waddle off at a distance and dismiss them as either bear or big ape of the orangutan species. At close range, they defied facile description. There was something both of the bear and the ape about their general shape, but they could not be mistaken for either. The color was a rusty kind of brown. They appeared to be covered by two distinct kinds of hair. The reddish hair, which gave them their characteristic color, forming a tight, close fur against the body mingling with what were long, loose, straight hairs hanging downwards, which had a slight grayish tinge to them as the light caught them. Dangling our feet over the edge of the rock, we kept them closely under observation for about an hour. They were doing nothing but moving around slowly together, occasionally stopping to look around them like people admiring a view. Their heads turned to us now and again, but their interest in us seemed to be of the slightest. Then Zaro stood up. We can't wait all day for them to make up their minds to move. I'm going to shift them. He went off into a pantomime of arm-waving. Red Indian war dancing, bawling and shrieking. The things did not even turn. Zaro scratched around and came up with a half a dozen pieces of ice about a quarter of an inch thick. One after another, he pitched them down towards the pair, but they skimmed erratically and lost direction. One missile kicked up a little powder of snow about 20 yards from them, but if they saw it, they gave no sign. Zaro sat back down again, panting. We gave them another hour, but they seemed content to stay where they were. I got the uncomfortable feeling they were challenging us to continue our descent across their ground. I think they're laughing at us, said Zaro. Mr. Smith stood up. It occurs to me that they might have taken into their heads to come up and investigate us. It's obvious they're not afraid of us. I think we had better go while we are safe. We pushed off around the rock and directly away from them. I looked back and the pair were standing still, arms swinging slightly as though listening intently. What they were for years, they remained a mystery to me. 
but since I have read but recently but since recently I have read of scientific expeditions to discover the abominable snowman of the Himalayas and studied descriptions of the creature given by native hillmen. I believe that the five of us that day may have met two of the animals. And if so, I think recent estimates of their height as about five feet is wrong. The creatures we saw must have been at least seven feet. I think that in causing a deviation of our route, they brought our final disaster upon us. And it goes on. That was the last they saw of them, but it goes on to the uh, the rest of the story as it was. But, Kev, you know, this account was very much to me uh, like Teddy Roosevelt's Wilderness Hunter where he plugged in Bauman's account. Yes. And we said that why would a guy who just... Uh, uh, put together a book with all factual data suddenly throw this uh, narrative in there that was bogus. I'm with you. And when did this take place, Bill? 1941. Okay. These guys, if you read the story, uh, they broke out of a a, uh, Siberian Russian prisoner of war camp. Okay. Eight men. They climbed the wire and escaped. Uh, They had minimal food. Uh, They're calling it a week's worth of food. Somehow they had gotten a hatchet and a knife. I didn't read the story, so I was speed reading through it, but I know a few little things. My estimate looking at the map is that these guys went on foot 3,000 miles beginning in the Siberian wilderness, uh, China, the Gobi Desert. I mean, just think about it. Yeah, that's quite a journey. And that's why I read the back, uh, the little blurb off the back cover, the will of man to survive and be free. No doubt. And four of the eight died in the process. Well, you could imagine, only imagine, how bad a prison camp is in Siberia. Uh, just, it's, it's about as bad as it gets. Yeah, it's... But blow my, I don't even think I can imagine it, you yeah. know what I mean? But think about this sighting. Here they are, just about... They actually entered into uh, northern India shortly after that. Uh, one of the last men who was to die died right then. Uh, they have this sighting of these two specks in the distance after they had were descending the last mountain in the Himalayas that they had to deal with. They see these two specks, dark specks. Now, what does that remind you of, Kev? Remember that yeah, video we British, were examining up in a while British ago? Columbia. Yeah. Saw this dark speck down in the valley. From That's the right. Folks on top of the mountain. Now, these guys had to go there. I mean, they were like, no more Himalayas, man. We're out of here. But look what's ahead of us. Yep. And their description of the reddish-brown fur, rust-colored, the fact that one was slightly taller than the other, 
And after he had been saved or, or come to full freedom, he makes note of the fact that he had read some of recent data about the abominable snowman. Right. And he comments that apparently their description that he had read said the creature was about five feet tall. And basically he says, you know, I beg to differ with them because what we saw was seven or eight feet tall. Yeah, much bigger. Yeah, much bigger. And just incredible, huh? The one Very guy cool. in... Now, awesome, I, Bill. Great great job digging that out from a listener and great job listeners letting us yeah. know about it. Now, I had never heard about this story before. And certainly... This is worthy of uh, being included in any Bigfoot narrative uh, out there, and I have never heard this story before or of the book. I know. Yeah. So let me just uh, give it a plug again. Yes. Uh, The book is definitely worth a read. It's it's freaking horrific, uh, the ordeal again and again and again that these guys went to as people were dying along the route. It's called The Long Walk, uh, The True Story of a Trek to Freedom. And the author's name, one of the guys in the group who di- who escaped, Slavomir, S-L-A-V-O-M-I-R, Rowitz, R-A-W-I-C-Z. Uh, I'm definitely going to be partaking of this whole thing. But what an incredible Yeti account Fantastic. By prisoners of war escaping, and amongst everything else they had to deal with, they have a dual Yeti sighting in the Himalayas. (laughs) Just incredible, man. Very cool. Yep. So there you have it, Kev. All right. Well, we got some good listener mail this week, Bill. Awesome. We are first going to go to Darren. In Wales, in the UK. Okay. So uh, let's let's hear a little Beatles accent. A little Wales accent? <laughs> I have no idea what it would be like, but all I know is that I don't want to be there. <laughs> and as far as Duel is concerned, he's getting on my nerves, that Duel. He sent us another email explaining that his real name is Daniel. Oh. Did you get that email, Kim? I did. Didn't he mention throwing some lead or something? Yeah. <laughs> Scattering some lead. I'm only kidding you, dude. <laughs> Scattering but, some lead. So this yeah. is from Darren, <laughs> not okay. Duel or Daniel. And he says, hello, Bill and Kev. Thank you, first off, Darren, for mentioning me. <laughs> he says, first off, love the show. Your uh-huh. humor... With an O-U-R, so I know he really is in Wales, Uh really brightens up the sometimes very serious world of Bigfoot. Having Uh first heard Bill on Sasquatch Chronicles with Wes, I purchased a few of the books from Amazon. Good stuff, page after page. I'm from Wales in the UK. Not many recent sightings of the Welsh Hairy Man. We are a small country full of castles and legends. Keep up the good work and energy levels you both have for the subject. A question for you, Kevin. 
You mm-hmm. mentioned the amount of traveling you do for your job. At least I'm adding in here, folks, I used to do before COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, the places you have been is endless. What are you, an American James Bond? <laughs> <laughs> Shaken, not stirred. Yeah. Bond, James Bond. Excuse me, Miss Moneypenny, can you bring me a... <laughs> Uh, yeah, oh, that's yeah. very good. Thank you, Darren. No, I yeah. uh, someday maybe no. I'll talk about it. But I do travel a great deal all over the place, and it's kind of goofy. Like I could be at the Taj Mahal, as Bill will testify, on a Saturday, and be in the bottom of the Grand Canyon on Monday. Yeah, yeah. But it lately, is. I haven't been anywhere. Like. When I was with my grown children the other day, an airplane flew over, and I was like, I remember when I used to ride on those. <laughs> now, you know, Darren, Darren makes mention of the Welsh hairy man. Is there a Welsh hairy man, or I, you think he was saying that tongue-in-cheek? I don't know. We'll have to do a little check on the Welsh hairy man. Yeah, let's do a check on that. And Darren, get back to us and let us know if you've heard anything about the Welsh hairy man. Yeah. So uh, there's nothing worse than an inconclusive email, Darren. <laughs> and meanwhile, I'll load my Walter PPK. <laughs> I'll right. break out. I'll break out the Austin Martin. Excellent. <laughs> All right. So the next email comes in from Dan in Connecticut, and he says it's a multi-parter. So I'll go through the whole thing. He says, have either of you seen a UFO? Have you seen the recent stories coming out about the fact that the government may be about to release some evidence related to materials of an unknown type that were found as part of the physical evidence of UFOs? Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Dan. Well, I have a lot of thoughts about that, Dan. Obviously, you're new to the podcast because I have had numerous UFO sightings. And I would encourage uh, any and all of you to grab a copy of uh, uh, General uh, uh, Colonel Philip Corso's book, The Day After Roswell. Mm. Uh, That was put together back in the 80s. If you want to read some testimonial from a guy who was in the know, about UFOs and what happened with the evidence, uh, pick up Colonel Corso's book, The Day After Roswell. Give it a read over a month or two if you're not really a reader, and uh, I think it'll blow your mind. But, yeah, uh, I think there's some uh, UFO disclosure going on here. And uh, whether or not it's being done deliberately or in parcel, being uh, doled out as though, you know, we're being fed little pieces. I think there's really something going on here, Kev. Yeah, no, I, I saw the stories. Uh, kind of, they're they're a little strange because it hints that there's rumored to be material, significant material disclosure coming out. Which I'm not quite sure why there would be hints unless it's somebody, you know, disclosing the fact uh, in an unauthorized way, right? Like, stay tuned, something's coming which that certainly could be. But other than that, I don't know 
how. And, uh, you know, Bill, when I was looking at this email, um, I told the story, I think, on this podcast about when I saw a UFO. I've, I've really only seen one that was very dramatic and clearly, clearly something that was not what you would normally see. And I mean, I lived in Phoenix, Arizona, folks, where, you know, you always hear about the lights suspended over the airport. And I'm not saying there's nothing weird going on there. But being an aviation guy, I lived out there and I saw where it seemed like there was a string of lights suspended over Sky Harbor International Airport. But it turns out out there, the visibility can be like 200 miles on a given night. So you're actually oftentimes looking at like six or seven or eight jumbo jets that are stacked up in the distance on final approach. And it looks like a vertical string of lights, especially if you're not used to the fact that you can see 200 miles. Right, right. You know, so I, but I'm not discounting everything that's seen out there. But but this particular thing that I saw was back on uh, Saturday, November 7th in 2015. And it was off the southern coast of California. I was out there on business, uh, James Bond business. Yes. <laughs> and I was staying at a resort called the Terranea, which people in uh, around the L.A. area will know Terranea. And we were out having a beer on the cliff next to the resort, looking down towards San Diego. And we see this like ball of fire in the sky that took up one third of the sky. And we saw it for like 40 minutes. Wow. Yeah. Like to the point where you're looking at it, it's right there. It takes up a third of the sky and you're starting to be like, is this my last night on Earth? You know, like, what exactly is this? Right. And uh, we're all Googling it like crazy, being tech folks and no hits at all. And when I read this letter this week, I searched again on uh, Google and there was a CNN story from the following day. Um, And I remember seeing this, but it was good to see it again. So on that following day, Sunday, and I'm going to put this on the website, it says mysterious light freaks out Southern California residents. Hmm. And also it freaked out some of the visitors like me. Yeah. And I'm going to read you the story. It's short, but it's important to, to hear this. So remember now, we saw it at Saturday night off one of the largest cities in the country, L.A., right out, right next to LAX. You know, you can see the planes landing at LAX from the Terranea Resort. Uh-huh. And it says, panic and speculation spread Saturday night when a bright white light shot through the night skies of Southern California. Residents posted a flurry of video, videos on social media together with theories of aliens or meteors. Others made panic calls to law enforcement officials, but not to worry, U.S. military officials said. It was a planned missile test. Hmm. The Navy Strategic Systems Programs held a scheduled missile test flight at sea from the USS Kentucky, which is a ballistic missile submarine. The test was conducted off the coast of Southern California, the Pentagon said in a statement. Mm. So, I mean, I remember thinking when I read the story back then, but even more so today, and I'm not, Bill, you know, I'm not a conspiracy guy. Right, right, But I'm like, what the heck? Why would the U.S. military, the Pentagon, 
fire a ballistic missile off of a submarine on Saturday night at 8 o'clock right off the coast of one of the most populous cities in the United States and in the world, for that matter. Also in an area where there's air traffic. Oh, yeah. And when when have you ever heard of, including the Saturn V rocket, for God's sake, the largest rocket ever launched, have heard of a plume coming off of a rocket that took up a third of the sky and lasted 40 minutes? Yes. So, I mean, folks, ridiculous. Definitely a UFO. And Mm -hmm. there's a video uh, that's in this uh, story. I'm definitely going to post it. And I have video on my phone and pictures on my phone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, So, yes. Dan, yes. Bill has seen them. I have seen them. And I'm going to show you a story about the one that I saw. And just the ridiculous explanation. Yeah. I mean, unless they fired it off by accident. (laughs) No, I mean, and really... Uh, if you go back into the 70s, when the whole brouhaha really started to get kicked up about the Area 51, Roswell, New Mexico, that whole gig, yeah, uh, that was what the original beef was. When the people were re-interviewed that were in that area, were saying that's not what it was. It was not a weather balloon. And the fact that the original headline that was released was saucer found in new mexico and then the following day it said weather balloon correction you know (laughs) so yeah really it's just a continuum of baloney and kev we were reviewing a a while back the tic-tac information oh yeah yeah now that tic-tac information was released uh that was uh Footage from a fighter jet. Absolutely. And 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 the audio from the fighter jet, too, where the pilots are talking about it. That's right. And they they don't just release that unless they want you to take a look at it, you know, so. Cool, man. To be continued. Yeah, we got to do maybe a UFO story or two, another one. It's been a little while. Uh Uh-huh. All right. So our last email comes in uh, from Keegan. And Keegan is in Alberta, Canada. Okay. All right. That was, oh, no, it was Saskatchewan where the uh, craven was seen. That's correct. Yeah, that that thing, I can't get that thing out of my head, (laughs) man. That was a vicious-looking, nasty-looking beast. It's awesome. It's awesome. So, Keegan writes, I've recently found your podcast, Thanks to the Forest Floor. Big Uh, shout-out to the Forest Floor. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have to say I'm really enjoying it. I listen to your podcast every time I'm at work, and each episode gives me both a smile on my face and chills down my spine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We should put that on our tagline, Bill. (laughs) I was curious on what your opinions are on the Wendigo, Wendigo down here. Hmm. Do you think it is a demonic entity or a physical being? I was also wondering if you've have if you've done any research into the incident that took place in Fort McMurray in the 80s when the construction workers were working on the highway and a Sasquatch was hurling rocks at the workers and howling from atop a hill looking down at them. Mm-hmm. Thanks again for the work you guys do and for reading about other people's encounters. I believe what you guys do helps give these people some closure to what they might have experienced. I thought I'd let Bill know. See, Bill? 
let Bill mm-hmm. know, not Kevin. Yep, yep, yep. That I plan on getting my <laughs> license to own and use firearms by the beginning of next year. And to let him know that the first guns I'm getting are an MK4 Welby double action six shot revolver <laughs> and a 12 gauge with slug rounds. Just in case I have an encounter that would make any person who believes these creatures are shy tree huggers pucker their butts and change their shorts. <laughs> Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need, right? (laughs) He says, keep on squatching and God bless. Keegan. (laughs) Thanks, Keegan. That's awesome. (laughs) Kev, you know, I I followed up uh, an email with Keegan asking him if he had any links to the story he was talking about. And he sent me some link, but to another similar event, he's going to look for the other one. Okay. I forwarded that to you, by the way. Okay. I didn't see that uh, one yet. But, uh, yeah, let me give a little shout-out to Emily. Emily has a podcast called The Forest Floor, and it's F-L-E-U-R. I guess that's like French, maybe. The Forest Floor. And uh, I did a little interview with Emily. She's excellent, and I encourage you to... Uh, Look up her uh, podcast, The Forest Floor. Awesome. Oh, Floor. And, uh, yeah, we're always looking into these uh, these sightings. And the tips that come in from you, uh, you know, help us to dig around for uh, things we're unaware of. I mean, look at this story I just read to you out of the book, The Long Walk. I had no knowledge of that. I've never even heard it spoken about on another podcast. And here this incredible story is right there for the picking uh, and it was brought to my attention by one of our listeners so Keegan thanks for reaching out to us Uh, good luck with your guns and don't point them at anybody unless you intend to use them that's right that's what they say don't put your finger on the trigger until you're ready to fire that's right Ah. <laughs> All wow. right, Bill. So that's it for uh, listener mail this week. And I just want to give a shout out to everyone that's been leaving us those five star reviews. If you haven't left us a five star review, please do so. It's really important. It brings more listeners to the podcast. And uh, by getting more listeners, it allows Bill and I to continuously increase the quality of the podcast. And a lot of you have been leaving those great reviews. And just thank you so much for taking the time to do it. If you haven't done it right now, open up the podcast player that you're listening to, iTunes or whatever, and give us a big five stars. Thank you very much. Awesome. And remember, folks. As many of you are still sheltering in place with this COVID on a rampage, if you do go out into the woods and decide to do a little snooping around, always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight.